Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll be taking our uh, third and last look at this passage dealing with the resurrection, the return, the rapture, and the reunion of Christ with His people. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I will begin reading in verse 13. The Spirit of God moved the Apostle Paul to write these inspired words for our benefit and our blessing. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, last week we looked at this passage from the perspective that when Christ returns, whenever that glorious day comes, He will bring with Him all the souls of believers throughout the ages, and He'll bring them with Him as He comes back to the earth. So all the departed believers will come with Him as He descends. So the dead are not going to miss out on the glory of the parousia, for they're going to rise first, So a lot of the grieving of the Thessalonians was their uncertainty is what would happen to the believers who have died before Christ comes back. Will they be a part of a resurrection? What will they happen? Will they be disadvantaged in some way? We don't know exactly the nature of the question, but Paul definitely gives a firm answer that they will not miss out of the glory of the second coming, but in effect, they will rise first from the dead. They will be resurrected. So there should be no doubt that believers who die are going to be blessed and glorified when Christ comes back. So the living, again, should not grieve as the rest of those who have no hope. So this morning we're going to look at the same passage, but this time look at the description of the second coming a description of the rapture, and also the ultimate reunion with Christ and His saints. So we'll begin looking uh, together at verse 16. So Paul writes, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So now Paul is describing the return of Christ. It's my conviction that this is a post-trib return of Christ, that the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation period. Those are my 
uh, convictions. But notice in verse 16, he's saying that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. So the Lord will come down in the very same body that He died on the cross in, the very same body that He was buried, the very same body that arose from the dead and ascended up to heaven, in the very same body glorified, Christ will now descend back towards the earth. And notice what Paul emphasizes here in verse 16. The Lord Himself will descend. There's not going to be a stunt double taking His place. There's no angelic stand-in, no mirage. You can't spiritualize this. He will come physically, literally, visually. The same Lord who died and rose again, He will come back. That's why the angels told the disciples in Acts 1 as they saw Christ ascending up to heaven, they said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. Very same way. Same body. Literally. Physically, you cannot spiritualize it. He will come in the same way that He ascended. So the Lord Jesus will return to bring this age to its conclusion. The first time Jesus came, He came as a baby adorned with swaddling clothes, humble, weak, helpless in His human nature. But when He comes again, He comes as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes adorned with majesty and and glory and power. And He comes down as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this is the glory of the second coming when the Lord comes back. Now notice when He descends from heaven, there are three sounds that will be associated with His coming. The first one is, He will descend from heaven with a shout. Now the the ESV says that He will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the NIV says with a loud command. And that really captures the meaning of this particular word to shout. This is the only time the word shout occurs in the New Testament. But if you go out into secular Greek, which they normally do when they're trying to understand what the meaning of a word, if it's used rarely in the New Testament, in secular Greek, in Koine Greek, this particular word is is used of a very loud shout and command. It's used, for example, of a hunter shouting commands to his dogs. It's used of a captain on a ship who's shouting commands to all the oarsmen. And it's also used as a military leader who is shouting commands to his troops to engage in battle. In other words, the the word shout refers to a very loud and authoritative command. Christ commands. So, who is the one? Let me back up. I said Christ, I gave my... My question's away. Who makes the shout? 
Well, it's going to be Jesus Christ Himself that makes the shout. This is what Jesus Himself said in John chapter 5. Remember, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, a single event, one hour, and all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. So they will hear His voice. So they're going to hear the voice of Christ. So Christ is the one who makes the shout. Now, what will that accomplish? What's the shout about? Well, it's a command for the dead to rise out of the tombs. So notice what he says, all who are in the tombs, not just the believers, but the unbelievers as well, all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So the purpose of the shout is to raise the dead. And not just some of the dead. Although Paul's emphasis in this passage is just on God's people. But the unbelievers will be raised also at the same time. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Some to a resurrection of life, others to a resurrection of judgment. But it all occurs in this one hour. You have the resurrection of the believers and the resurrection of the unbelievers. So when He shouts, they will come forth. So it's kind of like in in John chapter 11 when Jesus came to visit His good friend Lazarus who had died. And what did Jesus say? He shouted, Lazarus, come forth! So when He comes again, there will be a similar shout and He'll say in in His omnipotent power, dead come forth. And all of the tombs will release their holdings and they will come before the Lord. I imagine this shout is going to be a thunderous, booming voice heard worldwide come forth. And this is the very same voice that commanded and the heavens and the earth were created. As Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all of their host. This is a voice that no one can disobey, not even the dead. It speaks with the awesome divine power of the Almighty. Christ will speak and the dead will obey. So in this shout, what we have is really Christ releasing somewhat of a tsunami of resurrection life. A supernatural and divine way of life, wave of, of life that, that flows over the graves of all the dead and bathes their ashes with life and, and the believers of glory and the unbelievers with shame. All the dead will be raised. Not just the dead in Christ. But for the believers in Christ, the dead in Christ, their bodies will, every cell of their ashes will be penetrated and saturated 
and permeated with the permanent infusion of divine glory. This is part of the mystery. I mean, we cannot fully understand this, just even hardly even a little. But when Christ shouts, all the bodies of the dead saints, which is Paul's focus here, no matter their condition, no matter how far their ashes have been spread around the earth, they will be reconstituted, reformed, reunited, sinews, muscle, bones, tissue, nerves, all recreated and reconnected as they form a new glorified body impregnated with the very glory of God and rejoined with their souls. So the dead will be raised, the souls have been brought from heaven, the bodies will be resurrected, the souls will be rejoined to the bodies of those who have died in Christ. So this is the power of the shout. It's the shout of Him who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. This is the one who commands, who shouts, and all of the dead obey. So Christ descends from heaven with this incredible shout. And then the second sound is the voice of an archangel. Now the archangel lends his voice to the voice of our Lord, but it'll be different. An archangel cannot raise anybody from the dead. Not even an archangel. But he will lend his voice and he will shout out as well. Probably, I'm just guessing, I don't know what he will say, but the voice of the archangel will probably say to, to Christ's words, come forth. He'll probably say, Amen, to the glory of Christ. We don't know what he's going to say. Or he may say, barring the words of Matthew 25, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. But but whatever he says, his voice and the voice of the Lord Jesus will be the signal for the dead to be raised. In this particular passage, the New American Standard says the voice of the archangel. There's no article the, it's the voice of an archangel which raises a question, could there be more than one? Uh, the word archangel only occurs twice in the New Testament here and in Jude verse 9 where it references Michael. So Michael is an archangel. Maybe Gabriel is too. We don't know. There could be others. I would imagine there may be others, but we don't know. But the voice of the archangel will sound. And then the third sound is the trumpet of God will blast. So this is added to the other two voices. The background of the trumpet of God referenced here could be that in Exodus 19 when God descended down on Mount Sinai and He's about to to give the people the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that when God descends, He descends in a, in a cloud You know, there's an earthquake, there's lightning and thunder. It would be a terrifying experience. And then there's this loud, eerie trumpet sound. And the purpose of the trumpet was to call people and to signal the people to come out and meet their God. 
And in this sense, this trumpet of God may very well function in that same way. It's, it's a call, if you will, a bugle, a reveille of sorts, which is calling the dead and also the living to come forward and meet their God. Uh, this particular trump, trumpet of God would be the same as uh, the, the great trumpet that the Lord refers to in Matthew 24, verse 31, that He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. I think this is the same trumpet sound that's being referred to. It's also the same trumpet that Paul calls the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. So it's called the last trumpet, which is significant because it means there's other trumpets that have sounded before it. And this lines up with the book of Revelation when the seventh, the last angel with the trumpet sounds. So the last trump is the trumpet identified with the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. And when that angel sounds his trumpet, then the loud voices from heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So now the eternal kingdom now descends to the earth. And a few verses later it says, and the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. So it's all the same trumpet. So the trumpet will blast. Christ will descend. The dead will be raised. The unbelievers will be judged. And the believers, the saints, will be rewarded. So this lines up perfectly with the, with the sounding of the seventh trump in Revelation chapter 11, which occurs at the second coming. Now you may say, well, wait a second. We're, you're in the middle of the book of Revelation. You're saying the second coming is here? And this is what you find in the book of Revelation. This is what a number of commentators refer to as uh, basically the uh, recapitulation view of Revelation that John will take us through history and come to the second coming. He'll describe it. And then he'll revert back to history, follow the history again up to the second coming, and then recapitulate again and follow the events of history up to the second coming. And that's what you find in the book of Revelation. So you find the second coming referenced here in Revelation chapter 11. Then he, starting in in the next chapter, he goes back to, to church history. He traces that through to the second coming in chapter 14, and then he goes back in history and chases that through until he comes to the second coming again in chapter 19. So you find this recapitulation in the book of Revelation. And I think this fits perfectly with what Paul is saying. The dead will be raised, unbelievers will be judged, but the saints will be rewarded. The bondservants, they'll be rewarded. And that's what he's talking about in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So that's my take on the trumpet. Again, the trumpet is calling all the, the dead to arise. It's celebrating, it's heralding, if you will, the great gathering 
that's going to uh, take place when Christ returns. The trumpet unleashes a loud sound that would capture everyone's attention. So this is another reason why I don't think this is a secret coming in the clouds, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. It's just, there's too much noise going on here for it to be a secret, hidden, coming in the clouds before the tribulation period. Uh, This is visible. Christ descends. It's visual. It's loud. It's public. This is no secret coming. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 tells us that every eye will see Him. So again, it's going to be a public visual coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if Paul had meant to describe a secret coming of Christ in the clouds where He descends, raptures up the dead and and the believing saints, and then they go back up to heaven, but nobody else knows what's going on. They just see cars going off the road and crashing and airplanes hitting the ground because Christians have been raptured out and suddenly there's all this chaos, but they don't hear anything or see it. They don't know what's going on. If that had been Paul's intent... He certainly should have used different words that he's, than he's using here in verse 16. See, this is a loud appearance. This is a visual appearance of the Lord. So it really doesn't seem to fit with a secret coming of Christ in the clouds seven years before the second coming. You would hardly gather that from the words that Paul uses here with the trumpet sound and the shout. It just doesn't seem to fit that idea uh, in my mind at all. So that's the description of the return of Christ. So now let's look at the rapture. So notice the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then in verse 17, Paul says concerning the living, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. So now he describes those who are alive and remain, believers that are alive when Jesus Christ comes back, they will be caught up together with them, the dead who have been resurrected, And they'll be caught up with the dead believers in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those who remain, those who are left behind, do not miss out on the rapture. They actually are in the rapture. They're left behind, or they remain behind from the dead that are raised first, but then they're immediately caught up in in this uh, transformation. We, we sometimes refer to the word rapture, of course, refers to that phrase caught up because in the Latin it uses a word from which we get our English word rapture. But sometimes when we refer to this event for the living saints, we refer to it as the translation of the saints. The dead get resurrected. The living are translated. That is, we're just changed into a glorified body. Never die. The word caught up here speaks of an irresistible force that will catapult us upward into the very presence of the 
descending Lord Jesus. The same word is used of Philip after baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Just a supernatural, miraculously snatching or catching up his body and moving him about 40 miles away to another place. So that's that same word that Paul uses here for the rapture of the believing saints. Uh, Our change will be caught up together with them in the air. We're really not, our change really isn't described here, but uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, referring to the same event, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we, shall, we will be changed. So this great transformation that we engage in is just described as will be changed. But it doesn't go into the details of what we will be changed into. Uh, obviously, our this change just by the words that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 will happen immediately. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the twinkling of an eye can, can be either referred to a quick glance of the eye that happens just like that, or the blink of an eye. Just think of how fast your blink is. And that's how quickly our change will take place. It'll just be swift. It'll be immediate but we'll exchange this old body for a brand new body. Same body, but transformed. And this soul will be purged and purified from any remaining influences of sin. So we'll have a glorified body and a glorified soul just like that. So I can just imagine if you're there, you got arthritis, you're kind of... You know, you're kind of hurt and then saying, boom, man, it just feels great, you know. And it's just the transformation, it's a mystery. I mean, we just can't, we can't fully understand it. But it will be glorious. So the change that we will go through will be somewhat like the dead. The dead will be given a resurrected body, a glorified body. Our bodies will be a glorified body, so it will be similar to, to their body. It will be a glorified body. We'll have a glorified soul then, and a glorified body. And it's interesting that when the, the Scriptures try to describe something that's indescribable, they just use negatives to try to say, well, this is so glorious, it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not that. They can't really tell you what it is, what it's like. They just tell you what it's not like. So it's interesting when John in his revelation uh, describes what it'll be like in heaven and what our, our glorified bodies will experience, he just uses the negatives. He says, well, you won't die. So you're going to live forever. Uh, You won't ever have any mourning. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. 
No more curse. All that's gone. So you've got a body that's immortal that can't die. You have a body that, that can't cry. A body that can't experience pain. A body that has no curse touching it whatsoever. It is a blessed body, a glorified body and soul. Now a few times they do tell us positive things that we'll experience in heaven. David in Psalm 16 said, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So on the positive side, we're going to have fullness of joy. We're going to have pleasures forever. And it just fits as the backside, the flipping of the coin from all the negatives. No mourning, no crying, nor pain. Just think about it. I mean, this is absolutely wonderful. So in general, however, what our body will be like, it's, it's a mystery to us. And I think it agrees with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says, "...things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him." So we can't, we, we can't see it. We can't hear it. We can't even imagine it in our hearts. All that God has prepared for us. Not only a, a glorified body, but the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It's just a, it's a mystery that entices us to long for it greatly. So we come back that uh, we will be caught up together with the dead saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The reference to clouds here, I think, is very fitting. Uh, clouds are oftentimes in the Bible associated with the majestic presence of God. So, for example, on Mount Sinai again, God revealed His awesome majesty when He descended and the whole top of Mount Sinai was covered in a cloud. Just His Shekinah glory was just enveloping the mountain because God was there. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple, <clears throat> the glory cloud of God descended on the temple and filled it because God was there. And then as the glory cloud led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, that was the Lord watching over, guiding, leading, protecting like a shepherd His flock out in the wilderness for that time period. Remember that again in Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> when Jesus finally after His 40 days of appearing to His disciples, uh, it was time for Him to leave. And when they saw Him for the very last time, remember His hands were outstretched. He was blessing them. And suddenly He just started rising up in the air, probably still pronouncing benedictions upon His disciples. And they saw Him lifted up and He entered into a cloud and disappeared. So He ascended to heaven in a cloud. And He will also descend from heaven in a cloud. And again, the cloud just represents the majesty, the glorious magnificence of the presence of Almighty God with His people. So we are caught up with the believing dead, those who are alive at the time Christ comes back, will be caught up with the, 
with the uh, dead saints in the clouds, dead believers in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. So the cloud will somewhat escort Christ's people into His presence. And then notice we meet the Lord in the air. And this is an interesting addition to the thought, why did Paul say that we would meet the Lord in the air? And some have suggested that the air is called in Ephesians 2, the devil's domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so maybe, just a guess, the significance of Christ meeting His people, calling us up into His presence in the air, is that it's for symbolism because it shows that He has completely triumphed and conquered the domain of Satan. That He has invaded Satan's turf and He commands the space. He always has, but now in an outward visual way for He's going to cast the devil into the lake of fire. And so it just speaks that that's the meeting place. No fear there. No danger there because Christ rules in the air. He rules over the kingdom of Satan. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's in in complete authority over everywhere that, that Satan exists or ministers or does his evil deeds. So there's a total dominion and mastery over the demonic realms. And possibly meeting in the air is just a symbol of Christ's conquest over all of His enemies. Well, we finally then come to verse 17 again at the end of the verse where it says we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So this is the grand reunion. So you have the return of Christ, you have the resurrection of the dead, you have the rapture of the living, and then you have the reunion of God's people with the Savior forever. This, uh, this idea of being with the Lord has really been prominent in this passage. not sure if you have caught the phrases, but in verse 14, He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. So this is Christ coming down from heaven and He brings with Him all the souls of the believers that have been up there for centuries, thousands of years, all of them who have died, He will bring their souls with Him. They've been with Him in heaven, but they've been with Him without their body. Their souls have been there worshiping, praising. But we want to have a body. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't want to be unclothed That is to have His soul taken away from His body because much of our service and worship of the Lord to do it best is to do it with a body. So He brings the souls down and He resurrects up their their body. They're rejoined with with their bodies. And then we are caught up together with them. So there's there's fellowship, there's union with all the dead saints. And then we'll always... 
resurrected and translated saints will be with the Lord forever. The word forever or always in verse 17 just says that we will always be with Christ in Emmanuel's land on the new earth in the new Jerusalem forever. And this is, this is going to be the great ultimate reunion of Christ with all of His redeemed. All of them will be there. All of His sheep will be gathered. All members of His body will be collected. His glorious temple will not lack a single stone. It will be all complete. And there Christ in His glory will be with every single child of wrath that He died for to make them children of God. None will be left. None will be lost. All will be gathered to join Him on that day. And will be with Him forever and ever. There will be no separation on that day. The bridegroom and the covenant bride will be forever together. All the sheep will be with the shepherd. And I love Psalm 23. You know, we are with the Lord now in this life. Spiritually, the Lord is with us. Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art what with me. The Lord is with us in this life spiritually. He's always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But when Christ comes back and we're either resurrected or translated, then we, were, we are with Him on, a, on another level, a more glorious level, because we're with Him body and soul, with our risen Lord Jesus body and soul forever. We're with Him on a greater dimension. And that's why I love it at the end of Psalm 23. The psalmist concludes that psalm by saying, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the always with the Lord Jesus. That's the reunion. That's the one that we're looking for. Nothing can break that bond. No one can snatch us out of His hand. We are safe and secure and eternally with our Savior forever and ever. And then based upon that, Paul concludes with the word of relief. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, you are grieving because you didn't know what was going to happen to your loved ones who had died in Christ. And you were grieving. But now I've explained to you that they will be at no disadvantage. Their bodies will be resurrected. You will be rejoined with them. You'll be with me forever in glory. So comfort one another with these words. Just a tremendous relief that the Lord now gives the church that even though death, though a curse and an enemy, will be overwhelmingly defeated and conquered by Christ when He comes back. That's the hope of the saints. Death does not throw a monkey wrench into God's plan for His people. 
Even those who die will not be robbed of a single drop of the future glory. So comfort one another with these words. Let me just read for you that great victory crescendo that Paul gives at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. That glorious chapter on the resurrection, not only of Christ, but also of, of uh, the church throughout the ages. And it says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all the saints get the victory when the Lord Jesus comes back. Let me wrap up with a few concluding thoughts. One of the things that we see the Apostle Paul doing is uh, he's correcting their ignorance with truth. And this is really a principle that the antidote to ignorance is always truth. That's why he started out by saying, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died and gone. I don't want you to be ignorant. Let me give you truth. The truth will inform your mind so that you can have joy in what God is doing and you will not grieve. So the antidote to ignorance is truth. And that's why Paul was such a an incredible minister because he brought God's truth to bring light into their darkness. And that's what we need in our lives. We have a lot of darkness in our lives, but, but we need the truth of God. Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. Now, I rarely get my theology from peanuts. But I just couldn't resist on this one. So Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? Linus, he'll never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that he would never, that that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy, you've taken a great load off my mind. Linus, sound theology has a way of doing that. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He's taking sound theology and giving it to the people that's taking a great load off their minds. And so we find that this is, this is the ministry of the Scriptures is to inform our ignorance, give us light so that we can stop grieving and have the joy of the Lord in our hearts because the antidote to ignorance is the precious Word of God. Here's another application from this passage. Your bodies are destined for glory if you know the Lord. Your bodies are destined for an incredible transformation. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul says in Romans 6, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And then in verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So in other words, whenever you're tempted to sin with your body, remember what God has done and will do for your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Paul says that we're to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Praise God. Worship God. Serve God with your body. Don't let your body drag you down into sin or give your body or the members of it to sin. Use your body for the glory of God. And if we must endure tribulation and hardship and even death in the future because of our worship and stand for Jesus Christ, don't fear those who all they can do is kill your body. That's what Jesus says. Don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So honor God with our body. Our bodies are destined to live with Christ in heaven in glory forever. Honor God with that body. Another application. It's an encouragement to labor for the Lord. So at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, Paul concludes by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, when the Lord comes back, He will reward His people for all of their service, done by His grace through His Spirit, empowered by God Himself, but He will reward His saints for their service. So, as we think about the second coming of Christ, let that motivate us to serve the Lord that we might have something to offer Him when He comes back. Not to earn our salvation, but out of praise for the gift of salvation that He's given to us. So Paul says, in light of this glorious truth of resurrection, that death will be conquered by Christ and we have the victory in the Lord Jesus, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because your toil is not in vain. He will bless you. So it's a great encouragement for us to imitate that as well. Another application is just the encouragement to share the Gospel because Christ is coming back someday. And later on in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul will say, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the unbelievers out there are on their way as children of wrath to face their judge and be eternally condemned. They need to hear the Gospel. And may God empower us and put that burden on our hearts to be more faithful in sharing Christ with the lost people around us. Because when Christ comes back, they have no more chance to repent When Christ comes back, the day of salvation is over. And the command of the Gospel is come now. Put your faith in Christ now. Trust Him now. He will give you peace. He will give you rest. He will save your soul. So it's a great encouragement to share the Gospel. 
And finally, it's a great encouragement just to be ready for the coming of the Lord. You know, Martin Luther said he only had two days on his calendar. He just had two days on his calendar. Today and that day. The day of the Lord when He comes back. Those are the only two days that Martin Luther said that he, he was preparing for. Preparing for today and then that day when Christ returns. This is what I think we should adopt as well. We should seek to live today for that day. Live today knowing that one day our Savior will come back. And let us be ready for His coming. Let us be mindful of it as well. I love that story that Jesus told in Matthew 25 about the five prudent virgins whose lamps had plenty of oil rather than the five foolish virgins who ran out of oil and left to go buy some more and they were not ready when the bridegroom appeared. And then in Matthew 25, verse 6, it says, But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And while they were going out to make the purchase, the foolish, the five foolish virgins, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. The five prudent virgins were ready and they entered the wedding feast with the bridegroom. But then notice the door was shut. No more opportunity. And then in the very next verse, later, the other virgins, the foolish virgins who ran out of oil, came and said, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But He answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And His conclusion was, to the disciples, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. What Christ is encouraging us all is, is to be ready. We don't know when He's going to come back. Second Thessalonians 2 will give us some parameters that have to take place before He comes back. But these things can develop quickly. We don't know the day nor the hour. But what He wants all of His people to be is ready. Be ready for His return. Because if you're not ready, the door will be slammed shut and you will not enter the wedding feast. You must be ready. And the time to get ready is right now. Because we don't know when the Lord will ultimately come back. You say, well, how do you get ready? How do you maintain readiness? Well, Paul says in Colossians 3, if you've been raised up with Christ, if you're a true believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, the second coming, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So we get ready as we seek to live our life bringing heaven's values and heaven's truths to impact the way we live today. Peter puts it in another way. To be ready, 
Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ every day. Is Christ your Lord? Is He your Savior? Obviously too. But is He your Savior and Lord? Do you have a desire to live under His kingship, under His authority, living your life obedient to Him? Not that we live perfect lives, but do you set apart Christ as your Lord or is it your own desires, your own will, your own heart that is your Lord? If you're going to be ready for the coming of Christ, we need to sanctify Christ as Lord of our life. So that if you're here this morning and you've never done that, then you're in a very, very dangerous place. You don't know how long you have to live. You don't know what long what waits ahead of you in the future. But Christ offers you salvation. Why live your life alone when you can live it with Christ and have your sins forgiven and have the hope of glory yet to come? But you must repent and you must come to Christ because one day He's coming back and then the time of repentance will be over. And you will stand before Him not as your Savior, but as your judge. And He will cast you into the lake of fire from which you will never escape. Today is the day of salvation. He's calling. He's commanding. Respond. Confess your sins to Him. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. And when the bridegroom comes, We will go out to meet Him in the air and we will be ushered with Him into the wedding feast and be with the Lord forever and ever. And may that be the destiny of each and every one of us here today to the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank You for this uh, amazing passage that describes for us not only the return of Christ, but the resurrection of the dead believers, the translation and the rapture of the living believers, that we might be forever reunited and joined with the Lord to be with Him forever and ever. And what a relief, what a blessing that is. So Lord, give us that hope of glory. Lord, if there's any unbeliever that's here this morning, Lord, grant them grace to see their need for Christ that they might know Him as their Savior and not as their judge. And so, Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to review this glorious event that still awaits us. It's still coming. And Lord, we just pray that You'll help us all be ready and be watching for that day. And we ask it in Jesus' name most glorious and worthy name. Amen.